Hey everyone, uh, this is your host Asad Badruddin for the Stablecoin podcast and we have Nevin Freeman, the co-founder of Reserve, joining us today. Thanks for joining the show, Nevin. Thanks for having me. So, we'd love to ask you a bunch of questions about Reserve, but first I want to get to know you a little bit for our listeners. We'd love to know, what was your relationship to money growing up? Oh, that's a good question. So, when I was growing up, I sort of explicitly planned to never do anything for the money. I felt like it was bad to do things for the money. And uh, I, I sort of planned to not have a lot of money um, over the course of my lifetime. And that, that relationship changed a lot over time. I have some ambitious plans for what I want to do in the future and how I want to affect the world. And when you really think about that hard enough, you realize that, well, having a bunch of money would be really useful to make a bunch of things happen. And I, I sort of come to see allocation of capital is a really important part of how our society fits together. But but yeah, back at the beginning, growing up, it sort of seemed like if you had a lot of money, that meant that you were greedy or like not not a good actor in society. Interesting. And was there a certain experience that shaped your worldview of money being that way? I mean, I grew up in a very liberal setting, this this little sort of hippie town in Southern Oregon. And so the, the political mindset in that area tends to be more in the direction of crony capitalism being the source of a lot of the problems in the world. And so I think I just inherited that ideology at a young age. And, and what caused that to shift over time? Actually, part of it was Bitcoin and in a circuitous way, because I discovered and got fascinated with Bitcoin many years ago and it challenged my concept of what money was i felt like money was necessarily a government function before that and the idea that you could create a a currency technologically and and have it be um, used by a lot of people even though it's not a government function shattered that view and that led me to reflect on what money is in, in in essence sort of fundamentally apart from the government aspects of it and so that actually helped me kind of clarify my concept of the function of money and what it's meant to do and what it, what it looks like when it's working, what it looks like when it's not working. And so the way I see it, money is really beautiful in that it allows us to track who has provided help to other people so that others can then sort of know that, okay, this person's been helpful. Let's be helpful to them. Right, it's, where like money in its most functional version would be such that whoever's the richest has like done the most for others, and so you would know that you really want to help out that person. And, and and part of the issue with money is that that system doesn't it doesn't fully work that way, right? We kind of know that money is hackable and gameable, and so if someone's really rich, I think part of the reason why I growing up thought that that would be a bad thing, and people around me thought that would be a bad thing, is that oftentimes that comes from gaming the system, not from playing by the rules, right? From, from doing something where you're sort of implicitly stealing or, or tricking people in order to get money or selling products and services that are not particularly valuable to people, right? Where, where uh, you know, they want them, but in fact, it's bad for them. Essentially, I, I think that just all, all of those insights came from encountering Bitcoin and thinking about well, what is the point of money and how is it functional and how is it broken and how could it be improved if, if we actually have the ability to improve it? Yeah. And when you first 
read the white paper for Bitcoin, did you see something in the way Bitcoin was constructed that made you think that some of these, some of the negative ways uh, people can game the system can be corrected for? No, actually I didn't. Um, I looked for those. I looked for ways in which Bitcoin could fix those problems, but I didn't find any. The, the problem that Bitcoin seemed like it could fix was the problem of functional money requiring functional governments. Um, Bitcoin is interesting because it can sort of be held together without any governmental force, without any laws or enforcement actions, um, because you know you can't counterfeit it. And so there don't have to be rules about not uh, about stopping people from counterfeiting. It's just something that is practically infeasible. And the 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 uh, transactions are processed just because of people's positive economic incentives, and and so on. So, from that perspective, Bitcoin's interesting in that it could essentially allow us to preserve economic activity even in the case where where governments are are less functional, um, like in parts of the developing world, and also like in a scenario where there's decline of even developed government institutions, um, and that's something I think Bitcoin's offer us. But those other problems, I think, are still untouched um, by Bitcoin and even by stablecoins. Um, I wish I could solve those with a stablecoin. I don't think I can. But I think that a stablecoin is as a building block to getting to fully programmable currency. And fully programmable currency may be able to start solving some of those more fundamental problems. Got it. So what was your journey from you grew, you grew up in this liberal town and then at some point you read the Bitcoin white paper and revaluated your view of money. But, but what was your career path to how you got there and then to reserve eventually? Yeah, so I initially studied transportation engineering. The plan was to solve environmental problems through more efficient transportation systems and vehicles. Realized that I, I did not understand enough about the global climate to really tell which plans made sense. And that prompted me kind of in the same way as, as Bitcoin prompted me to think about money by stepping back. This prompted me to sort of step back and think about what did I actually care about? And why was I doing this in the first place? And realized that the point of having a functional environment is to support the flourishing of conscious beings, of humans and animals. And so it's like, okay, that's the thing that I care about directly. Now let's just think about what are all the things that are necessary for that to, to happen for, for humans and animals to flourish. And so uh, there've been a number of different things that I've pursued over the course of time, but I'm quite interested in and concerned about artificial intelligence. I went through a period of time studying that, and then I've spent some time earning money. So I started a news website for financial advisors, um, started a medical research company, and then have spent significant time helping build the effective altruism movement, and then uh, later helping build a, a company builder, um, which is like where you get entrepreneurs together and over the course of the time, they periodically spin off projects. And Reserve is a spin off of that, that company builder. Cool. Has that company builder shaped how you think about building Reserve, the company itself? Absolutely. That's something that we spend a lot of time on at that company builder is understanding how people think and uh, and how people go about understanding the world because we think that sort of fundamentally the, the way that you build out your understanding of the world and make decisions and so on is is kind of the most important piece of your effectiveness and what you can accomplish 
So the, the, the thing, the approach that we've taken at Reserve is pretty heavily shaped by the thinking methods that a lot of our team has learned and honed during our time at that company builder that's called Paradigm Academy. Cool. Did you have a mentor that was really influential for you throughout this period? That's a good question. I didn't have any one mentor the entire time, but I, I definitely try very hard to learn from everyone who's around me. And this whole community that I've been a part of and helped build over the past several years of effective altruism and then inside of that Paradigm Academy has many people who I've learned a lot from. Cool. So let's get it into reserve now. So I think on the website, it's described as a full stack open currency. So could you maybe flesh that out and explain what do you mean by that and then what the model is? Yeah, yeah. So by full stack, really what that refers to is the fact that there are some parts of a new currency that are just kind of the core protocol, right? The actual code that will be in our smart contracts. Our currency is a series of smart contracts implemented on top of Ethereum at its core. But it's also it also has to be usable. And so you have to have a software that's outside of smart contract land, you know, phone apps and so on, you know, websites. And then you also have to have the right configuration of people for a new currency to catch on, right? You can have uh, the perfect code and the perfect apps. And if there isn't like the right story around the whole thing, if there isn't the right sort of community interest and so on and so forth, then it doesn't really mean anything. And so full stack kind of refers to the fact that, oh, and that's super relevant for governance, right? When it comes to governance, people spend a lot of time thinking about what the particular voting mechanisms are. But really, if you look at the whole governance process, it's this mushy series of conversations and decisions and communications and things posted online and, you know, having to deal with like sock puppet accounts and so on. So like, really, when you think about reserve the currency, it's not just the smart contracts. It's really that full stack of, of different things. And open currency is, is kind of just our term that's just means sort of the same, the same thing as cryptocurrency, it's somewhat broader than cryptocurrency and that doesn't necessarily have to be um, a crypto asset, but an open currency is just meant to be a currency that anyone can use and anyone can transact with anyone else. I want to circle back to the governance piece in a bit, but could you talk more about this idea for reserve? I know you have that really great blog post where you looked at different approaches of stable coins. If you could maybe summarize that and then sort of lead into like what, how you think about a reserve for a stable currency, I think that'd be really helpful for viewers. Sure, sure, yeah. So there are a number of different approaches to stable coins that are being taken right now. So I can briefly touch on them and and then kind of describe in that context why we chose the route that we're taking. Yeah. So the most popular um, and easiest to understand approach is what is kind of right now being dubbed a fiat coin um, or an asset-backed stable coin, right? Where you have some currency, often US dollars, stored in a bank account or series of bank accounts that are backing a token. So people send money to the issuer and the issuer responds by sending them a token. That token be, can be sent around to anyone. And then at any time, uh, the holder of that token can redeem it for that underlying uh, collateral, those dollars or other currency from the bank account. And this is actually a pretty good design because 
it's easy to be 100% backed, which means that in theory, you should never have like a run on the bank. Everyone should always be able to redeem. And that should mean that the token is nice and stable. And you can back the token directly with the currency that you want to stabilize its value against. So you don't have to worry about the fluctuating value of the dollar or the euro or what have you, because if the dollar goes down in value, well, okay, that's maybe bad for the token holder, but there's still that one-to-one -one relation between the tokens and the dollars. The problem with this approach is, you know, not to be too cliche, but does come from centralization. Basically, there's some amount of counterparty risk. There, you know, there's a risk that that issuer will either through, you know, corruption or negligence um, somehow fail to actually make good on that promise to redeem. And then there's sort of third-party intervention risk, where even if the issuer really wants to make good on that promise to redeem, it could be that some third party comes and intervenes and stops that from happening. And that could be, you know, most commonly that would be a government um, that has decided they're unhappy with this currency system working this way um, that like puts pressure on, on the banking partners or what have you um, to stop that from happening. And so uh, that means that probably these tokens will be like very stable most of the time. And then they could potentially sporadically have defaults because of either of those types of risks. That's number one. Number two is sort of on the full other end of the spectrum is the sort of fully decentralized model that's, let's see, which we call this. The, the problem is that there are many different names have emerged in the space. So I'm gonna to try to pick the most canonical name here. We'll say the uncollateralized, and this is a, a common name. So the uncollateralized approach is essentially where you don't have any sort of collateral uh, that is external to the system, like other tokens or other currencies or assets to back your token. You just uh, create a system that has some number of tokens that are supposed to somehow back one another from day one. And the way that this typically works is you have your primary token, your stable coin, and then you have at least one secondary token that gives the holder of that token rights to income if the system is used and generates revenue, right? So a couple of common sources of revenue would be like transaction fees or Another way to, to, to get revenue is just as people, as new stable coins are minted, you can sort of just count that as revenue and distribute some of that value to those secondary token holders. And so then the benefit of these systems is that they don't have anything to do with the banking system or even any other tokens. They can just be completely independent in a sense, right? Because you don't have to worry about that counterparty risk or that third party risk once they get to the point where they're fully hard-coded and there's no like sort of backdoor where developers can make changes, you can just read the code and know this is how the system is going to work, period. And it's really hard for outside parties to come shut them down. Footnote, depending on how they implement oracles, getting information about the price of their tokens, there can be some degree of centralization still, and that's something to look at if you want to be very diligent about those systems. But the main problem with those systems is that essentially it's not really right to think that they're uncollateralized. They actually are collateralized. It's just that the collateral is that secondary token or tokens in their system, where the value of those secondary tokens is what's used to repurchase the stable coins out of circulation whenever demand for stable coins is going down and the price has fallen below the peg. And so another way to think about that is that the stable coins are redeemable, but it's just that they're only redeemable for those secondary tokens. And so then if those secondary tokens 
are really valuable, if the market values them, well, then everything's fine. And the problem happens if the market stops valuing those secondary tokens for some reason. And, and the issue there is that it seems kind of plausible that the market might stop valuing those secondary tokens from time to time if the market stops anticipating that that particular stablecoin is going to stay popular or is going to grow in, in usage. Sometimes the revenue depends on growth. Sometimes it just depends on continued usage, depending on the revenue model. And so then if the market temporarily doubts that that stablecoin is going to continue being used or continue to grow, that can cause the value of those secondary tokens to fall rather sharply. And if that happens, then you might not have enough capital in the system. You sort of might be under collateralized. Um, and then that could cause confidence to go down further. And that causes, you know, further anticipation of the system being abandoned, which could cause the value to go down even further and so on. And eventually the, the collateral level could get so low that you could essentially have a, a guaranteed run on the bank where people trade out their stable coins for the collateral until there's no collateral left um, in the system. And then at that point, the peg would break and the whole thing would sort of come crashing down. And that's obviously very bad for all the users. That's the second thing we'll, we'll call that uncollateralized. The third option is commonly referred to as crypto collateralized, which again, I'll explain in a moment why that's a bit of a misnomer, but if you're reading like blog posts about this, it'll often be called crypto collateralized, where in this case, we're kind of, we kind of go back to the original design of someone sends a token and the smart contract responds by sending the person a stable coin. So with this one, we're kind of going back to the original design where someone submits some value and uh, you issue a token against that. And then the token can be traded around and any time it can be redeemed for that value. But instead of the person submitting fiat money, the person instead submits some crypto asset of some type, right? So maybe you have a token that's backed by Bitcoin, right? So someone can send some Bitcoin to the smart contract and the smart contract uh, responds by sending them a, a token that's backed by that Bitcoin. And they can trade it around and then anytime someone can redeem it for that Bitcoin. Well, obviously this has the benefit of, again, no dependence on the banking system. Right, this is all be totally decentralized. But this, of course, has the issue that Bitcoin itself is not particularly stable in value. Right, so if you have a token that's pegged to, pegged to Bitcoin, well, what's the point of that? We already have Bitcoin, and so that doesn't really get you much. But builders of these systems have a way of solving this problem. The way that they do that is by issuing less value than the value that's held in the crypto collateral. So you have something that's over collateralized with some crypto collateral that is itself volatile, right? So maybe you have like $3 worth of Bitcoin backing a stable coin that's supposed to be worth $1. And the idea is, well, yeah, the Bitcoin might fluctuate in price, but as long as it doesn't fluctuate too much, then you'll always have enough Bitcoin to pay $1 worth of Bitcoin um, anytime someone wants to redeem that collateral. And again, you can have an Oracle system that's watching um, secondary markets in order to know sort of how much those tokens are worth um, in terms of dollars. So then, you know, but, but of course there's, there's the issue here, which is like, well, what, what if the Bitcoin does go down in value too much? The way that a lot of developers are trying to get around that problem is to have crypto collateral that isn't really crypto collateral. So you, you can take some asset back token, like tokenized gold, 
and use that itself as collateral. Um, and so the idea there is that then you can have sort of more of a handle on the volatility of those assets because they have longer price histories and they're just connected to assets out in the world that have more predictable prices than crypto assets, which, could, you know, as we've learned, can sort of go way up and way down. And so that sort of leads you to this fourth variant, which actually is really the main type of crypto collateralized system that's being explored today, which is collateralization through crypto assets that are, that are like I said, backed by something else. And, and so I'll talk about reserve, which is a version of that. So the importance of connecting to real world assets in some form is essentially that if you, if you have a new token that you've just made up, or if you have existing crypto assets, either of those as a form of collateral, the volatility is quite high. And, and so if you wanna use collateral that is highly volatile, you have to have so much over collateralization that it becomes really, really capital inefficient to run your system. Someone has to be willing to put up a huge amount of collateral um, in order to account for all of that volatility. And that looks like it's probably just not feasible. And so basically, then there's a question of, well, can, is there some way to use real world assets, existing asset classes as collateral without being subject to those risks of default that come from centralization, the, you know, the, the counterparty risk and the third party risk that we talked about at the beginning. And we think that the answer is yes, essentially through very, very wide diversification, okay? And so, so the concept here is you want tokens that are issued by many, many different issuers in many, many different jurisdictions all around the world. And so let's say you want some tokenized gold in uh, your, your cryptocurrencies you know, backing smart contract. You don't want just one token um, that's tokenized gold, like Digix, which is a, a cool and interesting project. You want many, many different issuers um, so that even if one or a few of them end up defaulting for some reason, that's only a small slice of the overall gold portion of that portfolio. And then likewise, um, just like if you're diversifying as, as like an investor or a hedger, you want many different asset classes. So you wouldn't just want tokenized gold, you would also want tokenized bonds, and also maybe tokenized real estate, and maybe some tokenized currencies, maybe equities, et cetera, et cetera, right? You'd want many different asset classes. Maybe, maybe would you also want short time. positions on those assets? That is one option. So you can have... You can, yeah, you can include basically derivatives. And so um, you can essentially have, um, you know, things that are not just uncorrelated, but actually anti-correlated. And then there's a, always a question of sort of how much does it cost to have, you know, sufficient short positions to offset all of your long positions, right? It could be that there ends up being a bit too much of a cost to like fully hedge hundred uh, percent. But yes, that's totally an option. And so, um, and so essentially, the approach that reserve is taking in the long term. So here's here's you know kind of the pitch for reserve, that our our philosophy is that in the long term we don't want a cryptocurrency that's just like one of these fiat coins that is pegged to fiat currencies because then it's only at best as good as a fiat currency, and also it, you know has these issues of centralization we talked about. We want something that is independent that actually could hold its value even in the scenario where the dollar or the euro starts to have issues. And so 
that's why we've chosen in our future roadmap to have this to have the reserve token backed by a basket of different assets and so by backing the reserve token with that diverse basket of assets that gives it a stable value that is kind of in a sense similar to commodity money right where it, it, the, the value of the token comes from all of those different existing financial products or, or in many cases actual commodities but because of the way you can create liquidity through these tokens on the blockchain it can be used as a currency um, even though it represents all these like less liquid things all around the world in the short term there's no way to create that you, you can't just create a basket of all of these things um, that are tokenized and trade that as a currency because they haven't been tokenized yet and it's going to take quite some time for that to happen and so the way that we're building reserve is we're starting off by having it backed by a bunch of tokens that are connected to fiat currencies mostly dollars and we're starting it off with over collateralization kind of for the reasons that i described because some of those tokens we think will have risk of default and we want to make sure that to the extent possible uh, the reserve token holder is protected from that. So it would be some amount of over collateralization and a basket of fiat currency backed tokens that all together back the reserve. And then the, the last piece of the reserve system is that there are two tokens. There's the reserve token and there's the reserve share token. And the reserve share token is there because if you have over collateralization, that extra money, that extra collateral has to come from somewhere. Someone has to contribute that capital to the system. And so that extra collateral comes from the purchase of reserve share tokens, right? And so, so basically participants in the ecosystem can choose to put up that um, extra collateral in exchange for buying a reserve token. And then in the long term, they stand to potentially earn a yield if the, if the reserve becomes a popular currency. Obviously, there's no guarantee that they will earn money. And it's a risky thing to take on that bet. But if reserve becomes a popular currency, then transaction fees on the reserve token and also the extra capital that comes from the appreciation of those backing assets on average over time are both available as revenue streams for the reserve shareholders. And there's like one sort of hard to understand piece of that, which is that the reserve shareholders only have to contribute a relatively small amount of capital to overcapitalize at the beginning. Once the system is mature, the backing will be roughly one-to-one. -one. And so all of the collateral will have come from the sale of reserve tokens, not from the sale of reserve share tokens. And so this means that if that basket appreciates at even a, a very slow rate, like 2% or 2.5%, that ends up being a really notable fraction compared to the purchase price of the reserve shares, which would be much smaller than uh, sort of the size of that portfolio. Anyway, so don't need to go too far into that, but just for curious listeners. So at the beginning, would the reserve token be a stable coin or would that be, or would that take time to happen? Yeah, so the reserve token should be stable right from the beginning um, because right from the beginning, you should be able to redeem it for uh, $1 worth of these other collateral tokens. And what's the connection between the collateral tokens and the reserve shares yeah so the reserve shares are what the the protocol sells in order to raise the extra collateral so it's like the when people buy reserve tokens 
it's sort of like when they buy tether tokens that yields one-to-one -one collateral by default because the money that they spend just goes into our smart contract and then if you want to have over collateralization like more than 100 percent that comes from the sale of reserve share tokens and what gives the reserve share tokens value then because yep. it's not backed by the asset so, that's right so 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 the value for the reserve share token comes from two sources one is transaction fees on the reserve token and the other is this somewhat complicated thing that i described which is appreciation of those assets that are held in our vault smart contract the the, the backing assets basically the way to think about it is that the reserve token holders have the right to redeem their token for the principal and the reserve share token holders do not have that right but they have the rights to the appreciation of that portfolio over time got it i think this is a great time to talk about the legal structure and the governance piece you alluded to earlier yeah i guess what is the legal structure of this entity and how do you envision governance to work yeah so i think that i will i will refrain from commenting on the legal structure just because I've been advised to not do that for a bit. I can totally talk about the governance for the protocol itself. At least, at least in general terms, it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. But so with a system like this, any, any stablecoin that holds external collateral on the blockchain can't be forked because you can't, um, if you make a copy of our smart contracts, you can't just make a copy of all the tokens that they're holding. Um, right, because then you could just sort of make free money if you copy other people's tokens. And so what, or, or put another way, you'd have to fork our system and the smart contracts for all of those tokens that we're holding at the same time and convince everyone that those are the real ones, which would be more difficult than just working one thing at a time. And so because of that, we have to have some sort of on-chain governance mechanism in order to make updates to how this works. And I, I guess so so a couple of interesting points about that one is that we have to also be able to update the the target portfolio for this vault smart contract the smart contract that holds the backing tokens because of the fact that we're starting with the tokens that exist today and we're going to want to add other tokens as they um, are issued over the course of time and so i won't go into all of the voting mechanics we have a system that's like a bit like tezos um, as like a simple reference but one thing that's interesting about our system is that because you have these two different tokens, the two different populations have different sets of incentives. And so we've concluded that it's necessary in many cases at least for both token holder, token type holders to participate in voting. And because you can think of scenarios where something would benefit the share token holders but wouldn't necessarily benefit the stable token holders. Got it. And this is on chain. And then what's your go-to-market strategy for reserve? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. So we break it down into a couple of categories. The applications inside of crypto, the emerging market applications of stable coins, and then tertiarily the broad usage of, of stable coins in the global financial system, which is sort of much hairier beast, much harder to predict. So we think that a cryptocurrency has many, many different applications. And so it's hard to see which markets are going to be the biggest over the course of time. The market that we are most excited about at first is, 
basically providing a stable store value in emerging markets. And so there are something like 16 countries with 20% or higher inflation right now. If you look at different sources, you'll get different numbers, but, it, but it, you know, some sources that are measuring like week to week um, exchange rates are reporting that there are like many, like several, like five or six countries with over 100% inflation um, per year. And so we think that cryptocurrencies that have a stable value are a really interesting opportunity for people in those environments to basically store their wealth. And in many cases, they are currently not allowed to buy major fiat currencies that have a stable value. We think it'll be easier for them to get their hands on stable cryptocurrencies. And so we've been exploring conversations with potential partners and a bunch of those jurisdictions um, to sort of understand the feasibility of that and, and work towards distributing in the case that that is legally permissible. Got it. Well, I know we're on our mark for the length of the podcast. So yeah, once again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. Where can people find out, find you on the internet or find out more about Reserve? Yeah, we are at reserve.org and uh, join us there to participate in our Telegram channel uh, or join our email list. Uh, we also have a bunch of open positions and you know, for people wondering about investing, we've raised money from Coinbase and Digital Currency Group and a bunch of other crypto funds and we don't have any like current plans for a public sale um, but if we do choose to do that we'll announce it um, in that Telegram group sometime in the future. Got it. Well once again Nathan, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.